This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Daniel Henderson. And we're back with you once again to talk about the films of the world. Danielle, what's up with you? I don't I don't know about you, but I am so glad that Mercury and all six of those other goddamn planets are out of retrograde. <laughs> Holy this shit, last month me too. was a bitch. This last month was a real motherfucker. Um, all right. I want to get like a baseline question out to you right now. Yeah. Okay. Because I find that, you know, we are in a true age of astrology. I feel like. Yes. I feel like, like there are apps. There are everyone I know is into it at this point. Like people who know their signs and everything. But then there's just like certain people that don't know, like more advanced level stuff, like maybe what a mercury in retrograde is. So. Right. Tell, do you know anything about it? Or do, can you explain it to people who maybe don't know what the fuck is going on? I know it fucks up my life every time it happens, and it happens a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Um, but it's basically like you're looking at the position of it's supposed to only be like two or three times a year, but Mercury like travels backwards. And so that's the retrograde part. And it just yeah. fucks everything up because it's like, oh, here's this actual literal like entity yeah. traveling in an unnatural way. <laughs> yeah. So therefore your life will be unnatural. It's It kind of reminds me like of that, that of Mortville in Desperate Living where everybody mm-hmm. has to wear their clothes backwards and walk backwards and shit because, you know, the queen is such a bitch. She, she makes people do everything backwards. And that's kind of how it feels. It's like everything is backwards. Like all good things are bad things. Like everything that I'm doing, things are fucking up. You're not supposed to do any like major signing of contracts or stuff. It's like weird, right? Oh, yeah. And it's only it also sometimes only affects certain signs, like depending on when it is in the year. And if you know a ton about astrology, please don't yell at me right now. Please. Um, This is just for my own knowledge, which is admittedly very limited um but i'm interested in it but i think that it's like there are times where it's just like oh mercury's in retrograde just for gemini's or like just for capricorns (laughs) um and you're like fuck what did i do to deserve this shit oh and it just fucks us up yeah it i think it's at a certain point it's 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 a thing in the astrological world but then it also has become sort of like a catchphrase for just when like is my life in shambles? Is Mercury in, in retrograde or is Mercury retrograde? However you say it, because that's another thing that Completely. people get on my ass about. It's kind of like the what? Frankenstein's monster situation. It's like, <laughs> Where you just start attributing it to like everything that's going wrong all the time. 
Well, but it's also like saying, is Mercury in retrograde or is Mercury retrograde? It's like a, th- a thing that people quibble about. But I just right. said it both ways just to cover the spread so that these astrologers are not in our DMs. Am I right? <laughs> or because- look, if you're going to come in our DMs, come in with like a reading. I'll give you the, the time and date I was born. Oh, fuck. Yeah. But also, oh, and this is the other thing. It's like this this last month, six planets were in retrograde. Pluto, Saturn, Neptune, fucking Jupiter and Uranus on okay, top so, of Mercury. <laughs> so so it, what was happening to you then? What, what was going on during this past month where everything was topsy-turvy? Okay, I emotionally hit the end of my rope pretty much every day. Like every sure. day at some point, I just had an emotional breakdown. Mm-hmm. And just looked at my life and was like, I don't understand how I got here. I don't think I'm doing well at anything. Like, I just had a complete breakdown, you know, for, for moments. It wasn't like it lasted very long, but like at least five minutes of crying every day. Sure. Um, definitely projects getting fucked. Um, my car stopped working. It's a three-year-old car and it just stopped working. <laughs> no, and look, you know me. I'm regular with that maintenance. I was with you when you bought the car. Remember? Yeah. We yeah. went to, um, we're not in Burbank. We were, we're in Glendale. In, um, yeah. We were in but Glendale. Auto Row in Glendale or whatever yes. it's called. So I, and I was there. that day was wild. We went on Halloween because a friend of mine told me, and this is actually good advice, that if you're ever looking to buy a car, the best time to, from a dealer, the best time to go is Halloween at like two o'clock in the afternoon. Because you'll have time to test drive it. You'll have time to get into it. Do your research beforehand. But everyone's going to want to leave to go home <sighs> with their kids. So they will start making deals left and right. I got like a six-year warranty. Or like a 10-year <laughs> like a ten year warranty or some bullshit like that. Because they were just like, we need to go home. And I'm like, great. I, I don't. Yeah. I got Sun's the time, going down. My kid's out here dressed like fucking Buzz Lightyear. And I'm not there. <laughs> This bitch, just give her anything she wants just to get the fuck out of Glendale and home. And I I financed through my bank, so I'm like, I don't even need your money. Like, I literally got the time. And Hell meanwhile, yeah. Millie's sitting next to me, just, we're both starving ourselves to actual death, like, like withering from starvation. So oh, yeah. my only additive to that advice is bring a fucking granola bar. Because yeah. we went to Shake Shack afterwards and ate, like, we in silence, like, monsters, like, yeah. we were just so hungry. And then we drove home and listened to Don't Disturb This Groove, and it was all great. Oh, yeah. And I made a video. I made a video, and I reposted it on your birthday on my Instagram. Yeah, great day. Guess what? That wasn't that long ago, so it's hard for me to imagine that your car just completely fucking yeah. punked out. That's crazy. Yeah, I was driving home. I went to the car wash. I was driving home, and I was going to go to the grocery store originally, had to change that plan real quick. And all the lights came on. It was like, Ooh. your fucking camera's on. Your fucking car- check engine light is on. Like, every light came on. Yeah. And the brake light was flashing. And then the car just lost power and went from 30 miles per hour to 6 miles per hour. <gasps> While you were driving? That's shocking. While I was driving. It sh- scared the shit out of me. So yeah. I pull over, put on my hazards, turned the car off. Let it sit for a minute because I'm like, I don't know, maybe when I was in the car wash cleaning the car, I like touched a button or something or like, Uh. you know, how when you're cleaning and you just kind of get in those nooks and crannies. And um, 
I'm like, maybe I pressed something. Maybe I turned on the parking brake. That wouldn't make my car shut, like, shut down. <laughs> it would just be like, hey, dummy, your brakes on. <laughs> You're telling me that you dusted too hard in the car shut down nook? I, I dusted too hard. I like to clean. I always go too hard at a car wash. My car, my uncle got in my car. I gave him a ride home the other day when he was visiting my grandma. And my uncle got in my car and he's like, is this a brand new car? And I was like, no, it's like almost four years old. And he was like, why is it so clean? And I'm like, I don't have dogs and I don't have kids. There you go. And that's it. But it's like, I keep my car clean as fuck. And clean yeah. and mostly empty. Like there's nothing in my car. Oh yeah, we talked about this. It's because yeah. we've lived in too many areas where people will just break into your car and steal stuff so you just you never have anything in it it's just absolutely gp but um okay so, yeah. so so it just stopped working and then i'm like all right let's have this shit towed and they tow. I, they i got home had the roadside assistance tow me yeah <laughs> from my house and then the tow dude i called the next morning and i was like hey just checking in on my car um you know i took it to the same dealer that of the brand of my car and um they're like we don't have your car and i was like ma'am sorry she's like we don't have your car i'm like <gasps> oh it was towed there yesterday and i looked on the like the vehicle tracking and i could see that it was in the lot so i told her I'm like it's there somewhere the reason they didn't know it was there is because when the tow guy dropped it off he left my keys in the car he didn't put oh, them in the drop no. box what is this the 70s yeah if my car gets stolen, who's fucking liable for that shit? Yeah. But I had to spend a whole day being like, where is my car? Before, so they didn't even look at it the first day. Because they're like, we don't have it. <laughs> that is wild. And it's that kind of shit. My grandma, explosive diarrhea all month. Just explosive. Like every time she went to the bathroom, it was a, an emergency. All month. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Somebody needs to come up with something stronger than Imodium and Pepto because Imodium and Pepto ain't got nothing on an elderly bowel. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I, yeah. I couldn't even recommend anything stronger than that. That shit is not even scratching. I'm like, what do I have to do? Have you eat like straight charcoal? Like nothing is even scratching the surface. It's like her intestines are lined with steel. Yeah. And everything just slips out. And I'm like, what the fuck, dude? So there, that's pretty two pretty terrible things. So your car completely crapped out. Grandma's actual crap. Yeah. Um, Something and horrible you, happened at work. <laughs> horrible things at work, which is like that I feel like is almost like sort of like everybody has that kind of drama during a retrograde. I feel like yours was pretty epic, though. And I will say <laughs> it, comparatively, like these things, it feels like maybe one of these things could have happened and it would have right. been like fuck retrograde but all these things happening at the same time is pretty bad yeah oh yeah it's pretty overwhelming and yeah. i read one of my my horoscopes was like you know don't take on too much during this time like make sure you relax and i'm like are you fucking kidding me there's no yeah. relaxing during a six planet retrograde retrograde yeah and it's over the course of a fucking month this isn't like yeah. a couple days this is like you got it. You can't just like take a month off and be like, let's hope nothing bad happens to me. I'm just calling in sick to all of it. I'm just like in the house. I mean, life goes on. Absolutely. And I, I know this about you as well, but I have an astrologer. I want to talk to you about this astrologer because I feel like, again, we're in, a, we're in an astrology moment. There's a lot yeah. of people now who are astrologers 
or who have become astrologers maybe over the course of the pandemic. Yep. So I'm curious as to who's your person, how'd you find the person, what's their what do they do? What are you what are you getting? Frequency, mm-hmm. info, all that. Well, I actually have two. Stay with me, folks. Mm. Stay with me. One, my friend Jennifer. Uh, who is probably listening to this right now and is her top is her, she, her lid is blown because she's like, what do you mean you have somebody else? She's a friend. <laughs> she's been my friend for a long time and she will always do a chart. She will always do a chart and be like, here's what's up. Yeah. And I appreciate it and I love it. But because she's my friend and I don't pay her, I feel like I can't avail myself of that all the time. Sure. Um, so when we're just talking and she'll volunteer like, hey, I'll do your chart. I'm like, great. I will always take her up on that. Sure. Then I have a person I just started with recently, and I have seen astrologers in the past on like a semi-regular basis. But this is a person I found through another friend of mine in the TV business who is a showrunner, who is a woman. And she was just like, this bitch read me for filth in the best possible way. You got to go see this person. And so I did. I'm like, I'll do one session and see what it's like. And usually when you sit down with an astrologer, it's not like reading your tarot. It's not like going to some, like when you're in New York or you're in a city and they're like, come get your tarot cards read for 10 bucks. And it's not like that at all. Like you mm-hmm. send them your information ahead of time about like the time you were born, the day you were born, where you were born. And then they come up with multiple charts, not just one, but like a bunch of charts um, yeah. that explain a lot about what the world is actively doing to you right now or ha- right. or your place in the world um, and how you're being affected by and affecting the world. And so I find it useful in that I think that from, again, like from my deep in my hippie heart, I feel like there is absolutely a connection that we have as human beings to the earth. You know, like I just truly feel like there is a, a strong connection that we have in our bodies to the earth. And this is my way of checking in with that. Yeah. Um, and well, so and that's, I'm glad that you said that too, because I'm going to get on my soapbox. Yeah. It's not, it's not a new soapbox. I'll tell you when I first went on the soapbox, it was new, but su- subsequently lots of motherfuckers now have this opinion. And I'm just telling you, I paved the way for you. You don't know it, but I did salute, <laughs> which is that there's a, there's, there's a lot of like, I find that there's a lot of like anti-astrology, like we're in a moment, but then there's always been this contingent of people. I'll say it. A lot of them are straight white guys. Yep. They hate fucking astrology. They're, they hate our secret knowledge. They think it's bullshit. And they're just like, I, I, I don't, this is all fun and games. And these people are fucking crazy for believing in this stuff. Okay. At its core, if you just want to distill all of the stuff, all of the apps, all of the memes, all of the shit, it is exactly what you said. It's just basically people processing information in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's allowing them kind of a different look into life because it's like an intuitive language. Exactly. And it's a feminine. It's feminine. And that's, I think, at the core of the reason why they call bullshit. Yeah, for me, it's it's a it's a very it's me getting in touch with a feminine energy and the earth 
And that is important to me. And it's, you know, if somebody can help me do that in the moments when I'm not able to do that myself, I'm absolutely going to reach out to that. And this is the other thing that I think puts, I mean, I, I can't speak to what puts people off, but I will say what attracts people or what has attracted me to this is that I like having that connection with someone who has the knowledge where it's not just look at this app and read this horoscope. Like they actually have a a kind of a scientific way of approaching how they're looking at astrology. I remember I took an astronomy class um, when I went back to college because I had to fulfill that science requirement. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the first fucking things the teachers, the professor said was, um, so astrology is bullshit and here's why. And I was like, bye. And I dropped the fucking class. Cause yeah, I'm like, I, I thought we were going to be like learning about planets and like cool shit. And you don't have to insult right away. You could just teach me about these fucking planets. For me, it's really interesting because you asked about the frequency and it's something that recently I've started seeing. I've started talking to this astrologist like once every three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I feel like for me, it's very much like let's check in every quarter. Let's check in occasionally. It doesn't have to be. But she gives me enough information that I feel like it helps to guide my emotional state during the rest of that time. Yeah. And she'll, you know, she sends me the chart. She sends me every, she's amazing. And she sends me everything. Um, so it's not like I'm in the dark. Like it's not, yeah. it, it's shared information. I think that is also like shared communal information is something that to me is also um, like a secret knowledge that women, people of color, like we've always had. And so I feel like, you know, yeah, to me, it feels very natural, very natural extension. Wait, well, I mean, it, it, to me, it's just like, okay. I have had, like, I I said all this. I'm very protective of it. While at the same time, I don't, I dip in when I dip in, right? I mean, th- what, right. listen, I've had my chart read. I've had people try to explain to me that this is so-and-so is trying to this planet and I go cross-eyed because I'm just like, I don't, I'm bad at science. I was in bad kid science me and too. bad kid math. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I don't know. And I bounce as soon as I could. I'm like, I am not doing calculus. I am not doing trig. I am bouncing algebra two. I'm yeah. out. <laughs> Somebody's like, oh, you're in eight degrees midheaven to, you know, Saturn. And I'm like, what? What does that mean? Like, I, I, I get completely, I just like, don't get it. Okay. But I do believe in the elements and I believe in like, you know, that sort of the elements that, as how it sort of relates to personality types and yeah that's really interesting to me and so you know like i don't know i i kind of go back and forth between what what i you know think is really fun and interesting and what i don't understand and i just sort of for, forget that part of it you know but the the retrograde thing feels it, it, I'm not going to lie. I love it as an excuse. It's such a great <laughs> excuse. But it's also like interesting because I'm like, oh, yeah, planets moving backwards. That can't be good. That cannot right. be good. That's a fucking plans. sci-fi movie. That is the yes. basis of a sci-fi movie. This whole planet is moving backwards and now shit's fucking dragging and fucked up. Yeah. Listen, um, there are many, many famous people who have consulted astrologers in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it ain't a new thing, especially in the 70s. Didn't Thank we talk you. about this when we, we talked did. about Black Christmas? About yes. Olivia, Olivia Hussey went to an astrologer so and asked if she should do Black Christmas? Come on. Yep. 
and the astrologer also told her that she was going to marry Paul McCartney or something. Okay. <laughs> Look, they're both still alive. They're exactly. both still alive. But I'm just saying, you're not alone. People have astrologers. Listen, if you want to get down to brass tacks, I kind of have two as well. Like, yeah, do tell. Well, so I have a, one of my good friends, Kurt, who gotta say he has been deep in the world for years like even mm -hmm. when we were in college he was reading people's charts and stuff he's a wonderful gay witch that lives in san francisco and he will literally call me and just be like oh yeah i noticed that again you're eighth eight degrees mid heaven something and i'm just like okay and then he'll just tell me what it means and i'm like that's awesome because yeah. I have no fucking idea what it what it can mean. Like you tell me the information and then you translate it and the translation makes sense. But it's like somebody who just kind of checks in with me about stuff. But then if I want like I have been seeing this other girl. I have seen her a couple times. But you know, like she actually does tarot and stuff too and you know, she's more kind of like a if you want to do like a a real heavy hardcore reading or something mm -hmm. like for your birthday or for something like that. She I actually did a reading with her on my birthday like a couple of years ago and not for nothing, but she she told me about the book. This is where people get this is where this is where haters and detractors start usually start their shit where they're like either there's no way she could have known that or well that was an idea she implanted in your head or well that was just a vague statement of like you're going to do something creative this year and that's not what it is that's yeah. not how it how it, it's never vague in that like you're going to do something creative it's always something that's like for in my experience it's tied to more specifics like this thing you've always wanted or it's related to work it's related to your experience like it's more specific than it is vague and yeah. so i think hater like detractors just can't stand it they're just like oh my god it's it could have been anything or she planted that idea in your head and it's not how it works well and like also what is the fucking bad thing about somebody saying i see you writing a book yeah and because in that my in that way i'm kind of like I don't know. Maybe that motivates me to write a fucking book and then I write a book. I don't know. There's nothing <laughs> negative there to me, you know? Right. And then, here, but here's the other thing. I'm, I'm going to potentially, I'm going to, I'm going to go off the edge a little bit because my rational mind really does not understand how this is possible. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like I'm like, I'm doing the thing again where I'm like, I mean, I believe in it, but come on, right? Like, it can't be everything. But there was this moment where I'm like, holy shit, maybe am I going, okay, I'm going to lay it out for you, and then you can judge me, okay? So cut to whatever, last year, when I was actually writing the book that we just spoke about, okay? When I was actually writing the book, okay? My my astrologer, if you will, Kurt, said, I have something to send you. And it's going to help you with writing your book. Because many people, I don't know, many people might not know this, but uh, I did not have a lot of time to write the book that I wrote. I had like six months to write an entire book. Uh, granted, I co-wrote it with somebody, but... But that's still word, not a lot of time. Word count wise, it was a lot of words. And we both were responsible for it. And it was it was crazy. I was white knuckling it okay 
And I knew I was going to have a hard time with the timeline. And I was like calling you every fucking night being like, I regret <laughs> signing the contract. Like I'm so freaked out. So my friend Carter, who I've known for like over 20 years, he's, he sent me something in the mail and he said, it's a talisman. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's basically going to help you write your book. And I don't know a lot about talisman. All I know is the one that came in the mail was, was in a package. It was inside of like a, a package and like a, you know, padded envelope. And then it was a little envelope, like maybe postcard size. Mm -hmm. And it had inside the, inside the, envelope was this card it almost looked like a index card and it had a lot of writing and a lot of different words front and back okay of uh, some drawings and stuff he tried to explain to me what it meant <laughs> I, had, I was like i don't know all i know is that it was just like a card that had a lot of different phrases and you know symbols and stuff and then inside of it was like some herbs and like a feather and like some other stuff. And then he just explained to me like, this is its bed. This is where the, the talisman is going to like sleep. The when envelope you're not using is the it. bed. The envelope filled with all of the stuff, like the herbs right. and those is its bed. Because I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to take out this talisman and you're going to put it like on your desk and you're going to write. And it's going to make you write like you've never written before. He's like, and, I filled this envelope with catnip yeah. and <laughs> you're going to be and, high as fuck. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me? And he's like, no, it's going to, it's, it's, it's supposed to give you the energy and the strength to complete this book, but you can't just like leave it out because if you do, you're going to go crazy. Like you're going to start cleaning your house and doing all this crazy stuff. So like, it's powerful is what I'm saying. So like, once you're done writing for the day, put it back in its bed and then like put it in a drawer. And I was like, okay, this is, I've never, this has never happened to me before. I'm just going to use this information. Danielle, I'm going to tell you this right now. And you're going to be like, what is wrong with you? And listeners, you probably will think this talisman worked like a fucking gem i mean this shit i had it sitting on the desk and like when i just be like writing and i'd be like yo i'm writing my ass off and then i would forget to put it back in the bed sometimes and then i would stay up all night and like think about the book <gasps> and think about oh shit i need to write this thing and i would leave my bed in the middle of the night to like go back to my computer and like write a couple more lines or like oh shit i forgot to do this and i would like stay up all night this talisman was literally like putting my brain in overdrive to oh like I know. And I was going insane. I was like literally like writing my, uh, doing mo the most work I've ever done in my life. And it was because I didn't put it back in its bed. Mm. And then when I finally realized it, I was like, guess what? <laughs> Taking a break today. It was, it was, but it was really like powerful. And I'm like, listen, I don't know how this shit works, but like. So wait, did you, you put it back in its bed? And then what happened? And then I just went, like, I, had a couple of great days of relaxation, didn't write, like just chilled. But I'm telling you, every time the talisman was out of its bed, I was like a, a freak. I was like writing, researching, doing work, staying up all night. It's like I had like a shot of like author cocaine, like right in my veins. And it was because I think it was because of the talisman. Now, yeah, I'm telling you this because 
it's crazy to assume that that's what happened. Look, right? I'm not judging you at all because it got the goddamn job done. Sure. And that's what matters. Even if it is like a power of suggestion thing or whatever, fine. It got the job done and it was a daunting task that was like really freaking you out. Yeah. So if you that- need a, a little talisman that you have to put in a, a feather bed with some herbs, do it. A lot of, you know what a lot of people do? To get books done, they drink a fifth of whiskey. Like, people get through this shit however they can. (laughs) And it seems like a very healthy way to approach a problem or approach a task. Well, and like, you're absolutely right. There's probably a logical reason. Like, maybe I just hit, like, a good pocket of energy. Maybe I had, like, a, you know, a power smoothie or something. Or, you know, maybe Mercury was not in retrograde and I was, like, really hitting it, right? Maybe you had like a handful of chicken in your car that day. Yeah. Of course, like a huge brick of chicken with no bun and just shoving it in my mouth. But I feel like it's the talisman. And I don't care if that sounds nutty or what, but I'm telling you, like, that's what my astrologer did for me is he he gave me this talisman. I, I got to finish the fucking book and that was it. So I don't know. To me, I'm like... It ain't that bad to have an astrologer. It's like a consultant. Hell no, it's not that bad. And it's also, it goes back to, for me, it also relates back to, and hearing you talk about this, it's ritual. It's coming up with rituals. And people do that in large and small ways every day. Like, do you do a to-do list every day? That's a ritual that you have to get through your day. You know, like people come up with ways to organize their lives and to gain you know, to get power from whatever they need to get power from so they can get through. Yeah. I mean, some people drink bulletproof coffee, which I think is disgusting. (laughs) Oh, God, is that the butter coffee? Yes. So it's like, I ain't judging you. I think that's gross. But you know what? Whatever gets you through the ritual, whatever gets you through the day, if if that's your thing. I love this sentence. I'm not judging you, but that's gross. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think it's gross, personally. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, you're wrong. You're wrong for thinking this. You're wrong for drinking butter in coffee. Carrie Gold. <laughs> Carrie Gold, by the way. I've seen videos of it on Instagram. I'm like, oh, God. Carrie really? Gold. Butter. People swear by it. Look, people swear. This is what I mean, though. People swear by a lot of shit. And astrology is pretty innocuous. It's a pretty innocuous thing to swear by. Well, I mean, I think I think most of it is that feeling for people like people who shit on it i think it is that thing of like this just doesn't it doesn't make any rational sense and it also feels like convenient excuses for things you know and i understand that i guess i understand why people would think that i don't think that and i and i guess that you know when it comes down to it did mercury in retrograde or slash mercury retrograde cause your car to shit the bed i say yes Absolutely. Did it cause this compounding uh, series of events that happened to me all more terrible than the last? I think so. Yeah. Planets moving backwards. So. You can, it, can't, it can't all be good. Thank you. And it's so, also, I'm, I don't know if you have this experience too, and then we can totally wrap this up because I know we will talk about this again. Um, but I think a lot of, because detra- I try to figure out the detractors sometimes. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but I just try to figure out whenever I you know, have someone say like, oh, that's bullshit or whatever. I think there's also a large amount of people whose only 
um, like whose only connection to astrology is like some Randy of the Redwoods, like 1960s hippie who comes on way too strong. Yes. And like it just turns people off forever. Yeah. So I think that's part of it is like if you if you have ever encountered maybe someone who's like, I've been in this life for 70 years and they're like, bye. Like they, <laughs> it's too strong. They can't handle it. I actually like that. I wish astrology would go back to that shit because yeah. right now astrology is like Instagram stuff, which I'm like, okay. Yep. Like I appreciate the memes once in a while, but then there's a lot of bad astrology memes and a lot of like, mm-hmm. you know, set your watch by this kind of, like, come on. It's a little bit more texture than that, especially when you get into the houses and the exactly. risings and the moons. It's like, come on. I have an Aries, yes, but I have a lot of air in my chart, which is why I'm such a flake. Like, come on. All right. So we got an episode today and, uh, you told me on Tuesday that you were super excited to do it. Um, so I can't wait to dive into these films. But why don't you tell the listeners what the theme is for this week? There's only one theme coming up that makes me happier than this theme. This theme just makes me excited. Our theme this week is Sydney Poitier is here to remind you yet again that you're racist. That's right. You're racist. Um, listen... We, I think, it goes without saying, I mean, the great Sidney Poitier is, like, a legend. 100%. Um, so, so many, I mean, his career was long. I mean, he was an actor. He was a director. He was um, an ambassador, wasn't he? Was he an ambassador? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was um, an ambassador to the Bahamas because he's Bahamanian. Yeah. And he was also an ambassador to Japan. Wow. I think he was a UNESCO ambassador. He couldn't stop yeah. being an ambassador. He's the fucking best. Listen, the dude has so much cred, it's unbelievable. And maybe that's kind of a good place to start, really, is that I'm kind of curious about your opinions on, because we kind of talked about this a little bit when we did the Denzel Washington episode for Black History Month, right? Mm-hmm. So here you have, I mean, he laid the groundwork for Denzel. I mean, he's mm-hmm. he arguably was the most famous Black actor working in classic Hollywood, right? Absolutely. And pretty much the only famous Black actor in, that was in very popular studio films from the 50s and 60s, right? He was like, right. I mean, you maybe you've got Harry Belafonte, but he was like, bar none, the guy in this era. And so I'm just curious what, it kind of in the same way we talked about Denzel, where, you know, Denzel's career was you know, because he was a black actor, because he was doing, you know, legit acting, like serious dramatic acting. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, sort of their own, their own place within the the, the Hollywood business and the types of movies that they do and the types of roles that they get and that kind of stuff, right? Which we talked about 
with Denzel Washington. But I feel like with Sidney Poitier, because he was like such, he was the guy that was, you know, this was during this big civil rights era. And he was basically like, you know, what a lot of white America saw in movies at that time. Like he was kind of the figurehead. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that that sort of, uh, uh, you know, affected his opportunities and his, you know, the way the movies that he was ultimately able to do and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm just curious about what your opinion of him is in that way. Yeah, well, he he has always been incredibly revered in my household. And I think that the importance of him as an actor was never lost on me. I think, you know, for my grandparents especially, it was like revelatory for them to be able to see someone like him in these movies. And they supported him his entire career. And I think it wasn't just that he was Black. It's that he had, he is a fucking astounding actor. And the gravitas and the the theater training and just like everything that he brings to his roles makes him so evocative. And I think that he... You know, he he was an actor, but he was also a director. Um, like we talked about, he was an he was an ambassador. Um, I think that he took his role as an actor very seriously in terms of how it would help him become that person in the rest of his life, which yeah. also paved the way for a lot of people in Hollywood to do the same. Right. And so the things that he did that just seemed to come organically to him, I think, created. A, a different type of Hollywood. Yeah. And I think he, he paved the way for a different kind of actor to emerge. And he truly embodied, like, the he's always talked about with such grace. And I think it's because he truly embodied that in in every part of his life. Yeah. You know, without, without knowing him personally. Last time I checked Twitter, he was fun. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that like he really I mean he he was this this incredible presence of a man and yeah. it seemed like his acting life was just an extension of who he was in his real life and not the other way around. It wasn't like, you know, he was a great actor which made him a great person. I think he was a great person and that made him a phenomenal actor. Yeah, because, you know, uh, the trajectory of his movies, especially in the 50s and 60s, I mean, he was in a lot of films that dealt with race, obviously. And there's a part of me that thinks that that would have been impossible to divorce, right? Right. Like, the the nature of who he was as an actor, um, his talent, working in Hollywood in his very specific time where there was a lot of social change happening... Mm-hmm. And he was being introduced to a lot of white people who were watching films. And he wasn't playing these like stereotypes that we had seen in like the early days of Hollywood, especially. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I think that, you know, his, he just had such importance, I think for, for film and maybe a little bit in my movie, I want to, kind of unpack that a little bit because I feel yeah. like I really want your take on it, especially, but I just feel like it's just like, you can't overstate how important he was to Hollywood. 
And he definitely paved the way for people like Denzel Washington, obviously, but just like anybody who's doing creative work, who is a person of color, basically. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And someone who, again, like he in his ability, he was born into colonialism. Like, you know, he was born in the Mm -hmm. Bahamas when it was a crown colony. And so he was born into colonialism. And I think a lot of seemingly a lot of his reactions to the world were rooted in, you know, the world that he was born into. He was actually, I I find this very funny. He was accidentally um, born in Miami because he was born three months premature. So he was Mm. born a U.S. citizen because they were like, here he comes. (laughs) (laughs) He's coming. But but I think that he was able to like, he was able to from birth, like straddle all of these, straddle these two different worlds and straddle these different spaces. And I think that he, He's he's one of the only actors that I can think of who garnered and deserved instantaneous and long-lasting respect. Yeah. And I really really I really love his the way that I think it's it's admirable the way that he kind of melded his personal life and his professional life and did use that for for justice and for good causes and it's not easy to take the the world of of talking about race on your back and, you know, kind of using that to float an entire industry. And so the fact that he was able to do that gracefully is a miracle. Yeah. I mean, I think I've pretty much seen all of his sixties films and Mm -hmm. I mean, there must've been a lot of pressure on him. I imagine because like uh, we keep saying, I mean, he was just basically the most famous black man in film in this time And so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, his career is so, I mean, we can't overstate it, obviously, but, you know, I'm excited to talk about these two movies in particular, because I feel like, you know, one's kind of like early 60s, this, and this, and this, my film is later 60s, but also has its own kind of like interesting point, uh, being that he was in three movies in the same year, and this was one of them, um, but I feel like they're kind of two way the 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 roles that he played are are really different. Absolutely. And it in a way kind of shows like a little just a, even a slice of his range, even between like those years, like just like what, six or seven years, five years, something like that. Yeah. Um six or seven years, I think. But um you know, it just really goes to show how talented he is. And I, I can't wait to talk about these films. Oh my goodness, me either. And it, it reminds me too that I cannot believe we have not yet discussed the film Sneakers on this podcast. Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> I think we've referenced it like four or five times and we've never we, talked we got about it. it. We got to think of a theme. We got to do it. Oh, yeah. it's We're, we're figuring it out. <laughs> if there's anything, we know how to shoehorn a movie into a theme. Am oh I right? Oh my God. I love it. And the, the, other, the only other thing I will say about Sir Sidney Poitier, because he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth in the 70s, um, he has received more prestigious awards than I think anyone has ever received. Like the Golden Globe Cecil B. DeMille Award, um, a Kennedy Center honor, a fucking American Film Institute um, retrospective and, and Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award. And like, he's just... Like the he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. <laughs> like, uh-huh. name an actor who has received more awards for 
the longevity and the breadth of his of his work and his life. I just I find him amazing still. I think he was a true gift to this world. And I I, I would encourage people to watch all of his films, especially in the 60s and 70s that, you know, guess who guess who's coming to dinner and the in the heat of the night and um, the defiant ones and just a bunch of them. But I think that he just every every movie that he was in was was special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was the first Black actor to be nominated for Best Actor Oscar. He was the first to win one, mm-hmm. I think. I think he won it in 64 or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just laid the groundwork for so much. And um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about these movies. I think I'm going first. You sure are. All right. Well, so my movie for the theme... Cindy Poitier is here to remind you that you're racist again, uh, is a movie from 1967. It was written by James Clavell based on the novel by E.R. Braithwaite. It was also directed by James Clavell and it's called Two Sir With Love. Those kids are devils incarnate, huh? I've tried everything, everything, but nothing I tried. Kids, kids, that's it. Two Sir with Love, the Lulu song, which appears in this movie multiple times, as does the as does Lulu. She plays one of the kids um, in the in the film. Is my all time number one drunk karaoke tune. Yeah. <laughs> I love this, like, when she's like, who has taken you from crayons to perfume? I love it so much. I get fucking, I get dramatic when that, when I'm, <laughs> my sober karaoke song is Magic by Olivia Newton-John, but when I'm wasted, it's To Sir With Love. So, just putting that out there. <laughs> So, like I said uh, in the intro, you know, 1967 was a big year for Sidney, okay? Because he was in three major films. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and this film, obviously, To Serve With Love. Now, this movie, I feel like, is definitely a big one in the canon of films about teachers, right? And we Mm -hmm. have seen many films about teachers teachers at this point but this movie in particular i i've seen this movie a lot and i like to call it a sunday afternoon film right because it's very 60s very british it feels sort of cozy in that way and i mean even in the parts where it's tense and dramatic there's still Mm -hmm. kind of like a nice like a gentleness or something absolutely perfect description of this film like it is a genuinely great sunday afternoon film yeah um so a one sentence synopsis of to serve with love a first-time teacher gets more than he bargained for after taking a job in a rough london neighborhood so just to get into it sydney plays a character named mark thackeray and he is an immigrant from british guiana 
And he comes to London looking for an engineering job, but he's having a hard time finding one. So he decides that he's going to teach secondary school or I guess high school mm-hmm. for American audiences while he continues applying for jobs, right? Now, I've never been to London. I know it's shameful, secret shame of mine. So I don't really know much about like the different parts of London, but Mr. Thackeray gets a job in the East End, which in the film is a very rough part of town. Absolutely. I mean, you've heard of the East Enders TV show, correct? I have, but I've never seen it. So it's the best. It's the best of the worst. Yeah. It's so good. So has it always traditionally been kind of a rough part of town or was it this so just in this era or? Yeah, from my understanding, it's always been a little bit of a rough part of town, um, kind of like the South, like the like Southie in Boston. OK, got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Because in this film, you know, this school, most of the kids that attend this school are very poor and they, they have troubles at home. And they're very much known for misbehaving and basically torturing any teacher that they've ever had, right? Look, I'm just going to say, these kids are fucking thugs. They're too rowdy. They're rowdy as shit. These kids are rowdy, rowdy papers. They they are. They are, you know, uh, hovering in between Gillies and the Double Deuce or something. They are. Holy shit. If there was, if uh, there was, there's always a point in this movie, even though I've seen it a few times, I know what happens. I'm like, if he just walked out and the movie ended, I would understand. Completely, (laughs) right? And that is so, this is the case in a lot of films about teachers. A lot of classic teacher films is this, um, the storyline of the kids just being really bad. And listen, on his, like, they're bad. On his first day, he's meeting the other teachers in the school, and they're all at various levels of exasperation while working at the school, right? Because you got this one guy named Mr. Weston, who basically is like, these kids suck, and just watch your back. Like, you can't help them. They're, They're destined to be the worst, right? And then you have this other teacher, a new teacher, just like Thackeray, named Jillian, and she's played by the beautiful Giallo queen, Susie Kendall. And she's way positive. Obviously, she's new too. So she's basically like, hey, I'm encouraging you to hang in there. And I feel like at some point, there's this like little bit of romantic tension between the yeah. two of them, um, which is very cute, I must say. Um, and then there's this other teacher that sort of hovers in the middle, and her, her name is... This is a great name. Clinty Clintridge. (laughs) Amazing name. Like calling me Hendy Henderson or. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hendy Henderson. (laughs) Cheery to Cheerico. (laughs) Exactly. Clinty Clintridge. And not for nothing. Speaking of, of classic British TV, she is played by Patricia Rutledge, who I know as Hyacinth Bouquet from Keeping Up Appearances. I don't know if anybody's Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you've watched PBS on a Friday night, you have definitely seen Keeping Up Appearances. Okay. But so Thackeray, he immediately meets his kids and they just start messing with him. Like from jump. Okay. There's this kind of leader of the group. His name is Denim and he's played by Christian Roberts and he just the usual suspect he wears like a cool leather jacket a real tough guy you know 
Um, and there seems to be this like kind of girl leader as well. And her name is Pamela Dare. She's played by Judy Geeson. And at the beginning, Thackeray is just kind of like going by the books, like giving them their lessons. And he's mostly keeping his patience while they're just pulling pranks on him and just like disrespecting the shit out oh of him. Oh my God. Until this one day, he's walking into the school and they fucking throw something at him from the window from a couple floors up. And then he comes to the classroom and realizes that they've set fire to a maxi pad in the garbage ah! can. <laughs> it was the living fucking end. He comes in so hot after that. He's like, first of all, you're sluts. Second of all, you're <laughs> filthy. And third of all, I will treat you like adults if you wash that ass and stop lighting maxi pads on fire. Exactly. Like he'd not, had it. Not gonna lie. There there are some moments where the 1967 jumps out in this movie. And and the way that he kind of yells at the girls in the class, I mean, that it would be kind of outdated by today's standards, but he is pissed. And <laughs> quite frankly, he has pretty good reason. They've been genuinely horrible to him. Yeah. And setting fire to a maxi pad was the last straw. And so because of this, he basically throws out all the book learning that he's been attempting. And his, his mission now is to teach his kids how to be adults. Like just Which, normal people. <laughs> normal people. He's like, we don't, I don't care if you learn trig. It doesn't matter. We're just going to teach you how to be people in the world. And, oh inclu- and that includes, you know, making them call him, but then also each other by sir and miss and teaching them manners mm-hmm. and respect and that kind of thing. And eventually... He starts slowly winning them over because, you know, he he's trying this technique that they've not experienced, right? And it's very much rooted in that idea that they need life skills because arguably there's not a lot of parents around in their neighborhood and they're about to be spit out into the system and they need to know how to take care of themselves, right? Absolutely. He's like, this is his worst fear is that like he's going to run into one of these kids at like, a hotel or something yeah like on his way <laughs> home or like he's just like i can't be in this community with you <laughs> like i can't live here if this is how you're gonna act it's right. very much in the interest of self-preservation as well that he's like this is not it's for your benefit but also for everyone's benefit right and you know this is you know he's doing this while at the same time you know he's basically he finally finally gets an offer for a job. Mm-hmm. And so there's this moment where he's just like, okay, I got to see out this class, but once it's over, I'm out of here. Right. And so through the course of the movie, he begins connecting with the students more and more. And, and how he does this is actually kind of interesting because Thackeray reveals to them that he's experienced poverty in his own life and he's worked a bunch of low paying jobs. And I think it's that moment where the kids really connect with him and they start even saying to him, like, how are you ever poor? You talk and act so proper like that. We can't even Mm -hmm. imagine it. And it's really interesting to me because this, this conversation that they're having 
really seems to be more about class. And there's not even a, a kind of racial component to it in a weird way, which I think is really interesting, right? Yeah, like the the racial stuff comes in when they're just talking to him in their kind of street language. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, it's just a joke. And he's like, it's not a joke. Like, it's not a joke at all. But I think that you're absolutely right in that it's not... Um, like, they just kind of can't understand the class dynamics that would have someone be able to understand them because yeah. they've never met anyone from their own station in life who has become anything else um, other yeah. than what they are. And he's not even what's great about th- those scenes, too, and that scene in particular is that he's not even saying to them, you have to be a different person. He's basically saying to them, like, you have to kind of go out in the world and command the respect that you think you deserve by action. And so whatever you're doing, whether you're going to be a clerk at a hotel, whether you're going to be like, you know, the fucking prime minister, he's like, you have to go out in the world and how you were born is not how you need to be treated forever. And I think no one has ever said that to them before. Yeah, I agree. And it's to me, it's interesting because I feel like out of the three movies that he obviously did in this year, in 1967, I feel like this one is the one where race is maybe addressed the least, mm-hmm. which is really fascinating, obviously. And in one of these moments where they do talk about race, um, it, it's this moment where this biracial student named Seals basically is kind of hanging out, smoking a cigarette in the corner outside of the school. And he, you know, Thackeray sees him and, starts talking to him and he reveals that he's been taking care of his mom who is sick. And there's this moment where seal sort of acts out at Thackeray because he sort of reminds him of his father who was obviously left the family and Mm -hmm. left this kid to take care of his sick mom. Right. And you fast forward a couple scenes and seals, mother eventually passes away And the kids want to get money together to get a wreath for the funeral. But then they reveal to Thackeray that they're actually afraid to deliver it because people would see them entering a quote-unquote colored person's house. Right. Right. And it's this really, like, heavy scene. But I feel like it's played in this way where it really just feels like it's all in the all in Sidney Poitier's face. Like the way yeah. his reaction in that moment is disappointment, obviously, but then also this reminder of that kind of thing where it's like, well, yeah, I'm their teacher, but I'm also black. And even though right. I do have a power over them, this world is still very prejudiced and they're reminding yeah. me of that. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And he's it's such a subtle shift for him um, in the facial, the the kind of acting he's doing with his face while you were just explaining, Um, you know, face acting how you do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's such a subtle shift for him because I think that he's like he's not intentionally trying to make them feel like shit. He kind of does that that very parental thing where he's like well, how do you feel about that? And like mm-hmm. kind of a, like just turning it back on them in a way that's like, you are with me every day and we have gotten to a point where you respect me and admire me and you can't do that for your fellow classmate just because he's black. Like he really just turns it on them so quickly and yeah. so subtly. It's amazing. And it's more about like 
It feels like the message is more like, are you going to live your life caring what other people think of you as opposed to just doing the right thing? Right. Not that racism. I mean, of course, he's saying racism is terrible, but it's not this overt like conversation, I think, that maybe if it was another film it would have been a little different. I just, oh, I just think would, it's interesting. They would have you know? beaten it into the ground if it was another film. Yeah. <laughs> like, completely. Well, and like, that's, I think, what I'm curious to hear your thoughts about because I, I feel like, you know, unlike Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is the the topic of race is literally like every moment in that film. Mm-hmm. This movie seems to be doing something kind of different. It feels a little bit more i don't know if effervescence the word but it's 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 got a little bit more of a um a feel-good storyline right yeah and whenever i watch this movie i really do love that part of it because there's a moment where i do think you know hey it is kind of cool for an actor like Sidney poitier who who has so much importance he gets he's kind of like in this film he's like a rock star at some point like at the yeah. the when he wins the kids over he, like in this entire movie he's very charming and handsome and like everybody's in love with him i mean every like when he comes into the school at the very beginning like i mean even at the very beginning of the film the women on the bus are like ooh he's oh my God. he's hot I you love know? that scene. He's sitting there looking out the window and they're like, I put him in a stocking and take him home. And they're like, you wouldn't know what to do with him. It's like the horniest conversation. And he's just stuck against a window, like listening to it. <laughs> well, and like, I love that. Yeah. You know, and there's this part of me that's like, I don't know. You're, I guess maybe getting your opinion again. It's just this thing where it's like, well, it, you know, I'm never sure if it's a good thing that that race isn't the true center of this film in a way like is it okay that it is a little bit just more light and um you know kind of like fun here's the thing i think race is the center of this film i think it's just that the way it's portrayed is in a way that gives him agency and it doesn't make him like an instantly pathetic character yeah in the story of race so it becomes a different story of race because you're looking at a character who has enough agency to say like, yeah, I know what world I live in. I see what's going on. I refuse to accept it. Yeah. And I think that is what's fascinating about it and, and what gives it kind of some levity, but also gives it like roots it in a reality is yeah. that they're not saying like race doesn't exist here. It's just like, yeah, it does. But he has his own point of view that he's able to express and that he has found a way to be in this world that feels good and safe to him. And then also has found a way to translate that through his teaching. Yeah. So I think that it's just like, it's a very different and cooler story of race during this time because it's not hitting you over the head with a hammer. It's more like, hey, uh, this is also just a day-to-day look at what some Black men experience in their professional lives, dealing with your children and the racist shit that you teach your children. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and like you know it's interesting that you know this teaching gig is is something that he's just taking because ultimately he's an engineer and he wants an engineering job and gets the job i mean he's not you're right that he has agency you're right that he's sort of like a professional 
man who comes into this environment and he, you know, is sort of thrown into the mix with these kids. And, you know, he makes choices on how to behave and he, you know, sort of like... I don't know. He he like I said it's so interesting because he kind of like he kind of becomes like the big hero at the end of the film which of course in these films and these teacher films that is usually what happens, right? And Pamela uh one of the students like I guess the girl the girl gang leader, I mean she actually develops this crush on him. And you know, again, maybe in a different film maybe this would have a ton of implications being that she's like this young white girl or whatever. But in this movie, it seems very innocent. Um, And there's this big school dance sequence towards the end of the film, which I love favorite so much. I know where you get to see, Mr. Thackeray dancing with Pamela because she wants to have a dance with him on, you know, it's like the end of the school. They're about to go out in the world and, you know, they don't know it yet, but he's about to quit so he can take this job that he's been trying to get. And they're kind of dancing to this like 60s British invasion song. And it's so cute. And you get to see Sidney Poitier dancing in this, like, he looks like a little mod in his little mod (laughs) suit. And it's so joyful. You know? It's spectacular. Because he's breaking his own, like, he's having fun, too. Like, he's finally allowing himself to connect to the students on a fun level. And it just is so fun to watch. Oh, my God. It's almost as fun as the scene where they tried to teach him Cockney. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There are the, you know, because that's a lot of it too, is that they're like these like hip modern, you know, British youth. And he's like a, you know, he keeps saying he's an old guy and he doesn't know (laughs) what the cool stuff is, even though like that's how he reveals that he actually, he knows a little bit, a, a little bit enough to like at least dance, you know, and look great. But, um, the, and then of course at the end of the, of the dance, you know, like they present him with this gift um, and his face after he gets it is just so pure and he's genuinely emotional and touched by their gesture. And it makes me cry every time, every Every time, time. And I'm like, why am I crying again? And then Lulu's up there singing the song. I mean, to sir with love is based, obviously written for this film about this teacher because they've learned to call him sir. And it's just like, Oh my God. It just every time breaks me down. Yeah. I'm so glad you picked it. I'm so glad we got to talk about it. I love it. It's a perennial favor for me. And I think it's a, like you said, it's a great film to showcase kind of the, the scope of what Sidney Poitier was able to do as an actor during a very um, demanding and and revelatory and creative and race-filled time in Hollywood. Mm. I love it. I love this movie so much. Thank you so much for picking it. Oh my God, of course. Now we get to talk about your movie. <laughs> <laughs> my film was uh, for our theme my film for our theme of Sidney Poitier is here to remind you that you're racist again <laughs> was released in 1961 directed by Daniel Petrie uh, the screenplay is by Lorraine Hansberry and it's based on her play A Raisin in the Sun 
by Lorraine Hansberry. And my film is Raisin in the Sun. Baby, don't nothing happen for you in this world unless somebody gets paid off. Walter, leave me alone. Eat your eggs, you're gonna be cold. A man say to his woman, I got me a dream. She says, eat your eggs, they're getting cold. Man say to his woman, help me now to take a hole in this world somehow. And she says, eat your eggs and go to work. I tell you, I gotta change my life because I'm choking to death. And all you say to me is eat these eggs. Now, I did not write a one-sentence synopsis for this film for two reasons. One, I spent so much of the week being so mad that I just couldn't uh, concentrate when I sat down to do it. And then I sat down to record and I was like, oh yeah, I never got over that and did it. Um, the other is that it's usually I, as soon as I watch the film for our homework, um, like I'll do my write-up right after it then any research that I have right after it. Mm-hmm. And... I watched this film, I watched both of these films with my grandma. And this one, after we watched A Raisin in the Sun, um, she wanted to watch Rocky. Like, we watched Creed the night before. Mm -hmm. And then, because we watched Creed, she was like, let's watch that Sylvester Stallone and all those boxing movies. And I'm like, all right, Rocky's one of my goddamn favorite fucking movies of all time. Yeah. And I have a tattoo. I have a tattoo based on the fucking movie. And I'm like, I'll watch Rocky any, I own it. I will watch it any day of the week. We watched all the Rockies that weekend. Like, I watched this movie, and then all I watched was Rocky for, like, two days straight. <laughs> it's a good good cooler, I think. <laughs> a little cooler. So I, did, I didn't write my one-sentence synopsis, but if I had to come up with one, um, I would say, like, on the spot, I would say that this is a film that, or this is, this is a... A film that explores the complicated dynamics of family, class, and race in Southside Chicago uh, during a very turbulent time. Perfect. And it's wonderful. If you don't know anything about Lorraine Hansberry, who like tragically died when she was 34 of cancer, you should look up some stuff about her. She's she's very, very interesting creator. Um, there's a, a documentary called Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. And it's kind of about a Raisin in the Sun and how it represented um, like African-American, the- um, African-American um, people and the play kind of changed theater. Like it just kind of was revolutionized American theater. Um, so she was really set, I think really quite poised to have an incredible career and just died way too young. Um, mm. There's also a lot of cool and interesting information about, you know, kind of her, her romantic life and if she was queer and like there's just a lot out there that I think is is interesting she was she was married to a man named Robert Nemiroff but I don't know I just feel like I don't I don't like to speculate about the dead but I I know there's also so much information out there about who she was and um it's worth looking up because I think she was a, a fucking dynamic writer and what she or what she was able to give us before she passed away was incredibly revolutionary so imagine Mm -hmm. what she could have what she could have been um and what i love what i love about this film first and foremost is the cast the cast is incredible so you have sir Sidney poitier playing walter lee younger um who is the kind of new patriarch of a family his father has died and um his he he and his wife their son his sister and his mother all live together in this incredibly cramped small apartment in South Side of Chicago. It is the kind of apartment where the bathroom is in the hallway and it's shared by the building. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, 
And they are doing everything they can to survive. And sticking together as a family is a, is a huge part of that. But I will get into that in a moment. His mother, Lena Younger, is played by Claudia McNeil. Ruby D plays his wife, Ruth. And Ruby D is another absolutely fascinating actor from this time. She's married to Ossie Davis um, together, but also singularly. I think she really, they kind of really brought Hollywood into this wave of of civil rights activism. And I think that, you know, again, like singularly on their own, but also together as a couple, they really used their platform to tell the story of the civil rights movement in America. And there's so, again, so much information out there about them that is fabulous. Um, please look it up if you don't know anything about them. They're just, we're just fantastic people. Her, his sister, Benita Younger, they call Nitha, uh, was played by mm. Diana Sands. And there's even a little young, very babyish Louis Gossett Jr. in here playing George Murchison, who's this <laughs> suitor, a suitor of Benita. Um, so it's just, again, like just the cast alone is absolutely stunning. And the whole premise of this film is that, like I said, Walter Lee Younger has died, the senior has died. And the family is expecting a $10,000 life insurance payout. Every single person in the family has a different idea of what they should do with the money. Lena, the mother, wants to buy a house and give them some safety and security. Ruth agrees with her. But Nitha, Benitha, wants to use the money for her college tuition. And Walter wants to use it to invest in a liquor store. So there's a lot of friction about what they should do with the money. Um, so Walter is interesting because he... All he wants in life is respect and he wants to be a businessman and he's currently a chauffeur for a white family, um, for a white business guy, and he doesn't want to live his life that way. He keeps feeling like the whole movie, you're getting a lot of information from him about how he wants to be treated and how disrespected he feels. So a lot of his decisions and a lot of his desires are rooted in trying to make a point like so much of his life is exterior like he wants people to see him as this kind of very accomplished guy but then he makes the most ridiculous mistakes and kind of isn't that guy like he really does a lot to he's more interested in the, in the facade than he is in building the life that would get him that respect let's say right. he's in it for the for the quick dollar and so when his friend Willie and Bobo um, come over and they're like, hey, invest in this liquor store with us. His mother, Lena, is is angry because she's like, I would never, ever want you to use any money to invest in liquor, which is destroying the African-American, like destroying the black community. So she doesn't want to help him for that reason. She's like, I'm not giving you money to help destroy our people. But yeah. he's just so pent up. Like the, his his acting in this film is... It's so tight. Like he keeps saying all throughout the movie, his his biggest point is like, you know, black women need to support black men and, and anything they do. But then again, like he doesn't make any rational decisions that are worth supporting. Yeah. So it's just kind of a strange tension that he's creating. And he, he drinks a lot. And it's just, um, again, this is a movie that to me is very much about class dynamics and race dynamics, but it's also about gender dynamics. And yeah. um, I think the overall theme of the film is kind of examining the American dream. Like, who is the American dream for? How do you access it? 
Um, and what does it even mean if it if you're trying to chase a dream that wasn't designed for you? Right. And so he's a really interesting representative of that. And Walter is kind of, I kind of love that Sidney Poitier is playing this character because he's not out and out likable. There are definitely times in the movie where I feel like you're rooting for him more than the others, mm. but he's kind of a mess. And you're kind of like all throughout the movie, like wanting him to get his shit together and kind of waiting for that moment to happen. So I like that. I like that for that time frame, you know, 1961, that's a really interesting character to play as someone who's not out and out likable. And you can't just rest on the like, well, he's a black man, so we should do whatever we can for him because like he's a fucking mess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that, um, you know, I don't want to call it a flawed character, but in a way it's that thing where it's like, it's not so simple he's not always good and he's not always bad and you know he might have good intentions but he kind of doesn't think about things like all mm-hmm. the way through and there's times when he seems really greedy and um but then there are times where you really genuinely feel sorry for him like you're just like you know this poor guy he just wants a shot and he wants to feel like he's building something for himself and he can't yeah. Every time he tries, he can't get there. But then he also falls on his own sword. So it's very, co- very complicated. But I, that's yes. a really meaty character to play, right? That's a, that's a, a interesting, compelling character. So absolutely, yeah, I, I love that character. I think that he, there's just so much to explore, and he really does run, run with it. Um, and I think that you know Benny Nitha Bonitha, um, I think is another interesting character because she's so flighty. Like she doesn't seem in in a, in a modern context, she would be kind of like a, a, a like a influencer, I guess you would say. Like she just tries everything that she can um, to kind of improve her own life and be seen and kind of get get hers and so she's taking guitar lessons and like she used to take horseback riding lessons and her family is just like you need to calm the fuck down and decide on how to live <laughs> like we can't keep investing in your flighty fucking ideas not not gonna lie i saw i saw a little bit of myself i had i was like <laughs> oh i've definitely taken drum lessons and i've been you know i've done all like all of the gear like they complain about how she buys all this expensive yes. gear for like all of her shit and i'm like oh that's me like go through my closet i'm like oh it's like all of my all of my various hobbies that i decided oh, to do God. randomly and it, all of the expensive sh- gear to do it it's sitting in a closet I was like, oh, yeah, this is me. I connect with her. I fucking love it. I connected to it a little bit too much, too. Yeah. And I especially think so because, you know, Benny is a character who is not motivated by marriage. She's not motivated by God Mm -hmm. or family. She is motivated by her own desires. And that is truly she's a radical like that is truly radical for this day and age like she's she's courting two men at once like the the george murchison character played by lewis gossett jr is this very rich um he's from a rich black family which again is like unheard of in this time or very Mm -hmm. rare in this time not unheard of but very rare and she's like and i don't like him so much you know who i really like is this african guy i met called asagai who Uh you know (laughs) like i kind of want to be all about his shit and her family's like can you sincerely just pick a lane? Like, what are you doing? Like, go marry the rich black guy. If you want to be a doctor so ma- so bad, marry that dude. And she's like, nah, I don't think so. 
Yeah, or she's also like, what if I don't marry anybody and just yeah. do what I want to do? Which is really actually revolutionary in this era is for her to be like, I don't think I want either of this. Like, Absolutely. And that's kind of like her, she starts to kind of um, romanticize Africa for that reason because she starts to talk about how assimilation has ruined black people in America. Like they've, we've been you know, trying so hard for so long to assimilate to whiteness and it's taken something away from us. So she's really attracted to, you know, this, this, this guy that she met in college, but it's not even because she wants to marry him. She's like, I'm just interested in living a different kind of life. And I just find her a fascinatingly radical character way ahead of her time. Yeah. And Lena, her poor mom is like, what has happened to my children? Like, how, how did I raise <laughs> these children? What is going on? And it's it's really shocking to her because she is, I think something that, that I definitely want to talk about is that the fact that from Lena's perspective, because she's so tired and she's worked her whole life and they moved up from the South. And this whole family is, is their survival and their, not just their survival, but their ability to even thrive a little bit is rooted in the fact that their father had to die. So like Walter Younger Sr. worked himself to actual death in order to give his family a fighting chance. And that is a, a thick thread that runs through this film that yeah. they come back to and everyone touches upon every, every once in a while. And it's like, it's a deep pain for the characters that they're all trying to figure out how to spend this money, but also realizing they only have this money because their father died. And yeah. that... You know, he's working, he was working in a servile position his whole life. And Ruth is a servant and Lena wasn't, was a servant and Walter is a servant. So Benita looks at all of this and is like, I don't want to do any of that. But then each of these characters in their own right are like, but there's something like we have to do something and, and carve some respect out of these jobs because we know that they're going to kill us. We know they're going to work us to death and that we will not have anything um, of our own unless we participate in this system so it's just it's a really cool friction between the assimilation conversation and what we're seeing with the characters and how they have to live in america um right. because they're they're there's not even a choice it's like this is this is the option for you so it kind of explains why walter is so gung-ho to do something different and you kind of start to understand like this is why he wants to invest in something and and be part of something bigger than himself because he doesn't want to work himself to death. He doesn't want to live the life that his father lived. Yeah. Um, so it's just really, again, like a, a fascinating portrayal. And this is all happening in this incredibly cramped apartment. He, in one of the earlier scenes of the film, like his his kid asked for money and Ruth is like, absolutely not. And he's like, oh, not only will I give you 50 cents, here's a dollar. Like he wants to kind of be seen as like, that guy to his kid. Yeah. Um, you know, he wants to be to his son what I think his father couldn't be for him. And so it's just, again, this kind of real, this real look at, at gender dynamics that I find completely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, I really think that Ruby, the character is like, also in her own way, like they all want something. They all want something that's bigger and better. You know, and like a lot of it, a lot of what she wants is that she wants to live in this house. She wants to, you know, essentially take, I mean, you know, she's she's basically in this family by marriage, but is close to 
Lena, right? They have a relationship. And, you know, she really wants Lena to take the money and put a down payment on a house. And that's like what she's always wanted, even though she will technically live in the house with all of these people still. But that's like even to just move into a different circumstance with all these people is still better than what they have. Right. Right. Which is that they're in a two bedroom apartment, cramped little apartment. Exactly. Um, And Ruth is pregnant. We find out. So mm -hmm. that's part of her motivation is she's like, I can't even have the family I want to have in this space. Yeah. So it's, it's painful and it's, it's wild and it's weird and it's kind of, just so much emotion comes up from the the things that people should want in life. Like they, there's this, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's this, this feeling that they're not allowed to want things because they don't know if they can support that in their life um, and how limiting that is for them. Because like, I should be able to be happy about having this kid and I can't because we can't fit another kid in this house, in this apartment. The one thing that every time I have seen it, it really resonates with me is this idea that the money is so important. Like the money is like truly the thing that's just so like, it's like a character in the film. It, it inform, it makes everybody want something and it, and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's, and I feel like there's been times in my life where I've felt that where like money was like a freedom for me in some way and getting it like waiting for the check like holding it in my hand and that kind of stuff was so important and then it just made me have all these like wild possibilities and that kind of stuff that's happened i think in my life i'm sure it's probably happened for many people you know hell yeah and that part of the movie is always just like so um it's so intense, I think. Yeah, it's really loaded. It's really loaded because yeah. it is. And it's it's also, again, it's part of this lar- larger conversation. I think that's part of the reason why this place was so revolutionary is that it's discussing so much in such a short time frame. Yeah. And this umbrella that's hanging over everyone, aside from this money and what we might do with it, is that they are not, they don't have the freedom in this, country and culture to even do what they truly want to do with it right um which is live freely so every single thing that people want to do with this money is tainted somehow so benita wants yeah. to go to college or she wants she's in college and she wants to use this money um for tuition to be a doctor well guess what guess how fucking hard it was to be a woman or a black person becoming a doctor in this time frame. Um, Walter wants to invest and be a business person. Well, guess what? He's never going to have enough money to invest enough to make any bank feel comfortable with him. That's why he has to go to his low life friends to find some weird situation to get into. Yeah. And it's never more evident than when Lena does take some of the money and puts a down payment on the house. She takes $3,500 and puts a down payment on a house in um, Clyburn Park, or I think, yeah, Clyburn Park. And she quickly finds out that, you know, they go to the house and it's such a beautiful scene where they go and see the house and they gift her with gardening tools because all she wants to do is have a place to garden. And it's such a beautiful scene of them exploring this house. 
And then they get home and they're visited by a member of the Clyburn Improvement Association, who's essentially this white guy that shows up and is like, um, it would be really much better for us if you didn't move into that fucking house and we will actually pay you more than the house is worth so that you don't move in. Like, we'll pay to keep you out. And so there's this discussion that needs to happen. If, if you are not aware of what this is, there's a thing that happens called redlining. Um, where entire neighborhoods are kind of, you know, real estate agents will like draw a line, literally like used to draw a line around neighborhoods as a way to keep black people out. Like there's a barrier and a border of like, you cannot cross this line. It happened in New York City. That's why you see so many parts of New York City in the early part of the century that were purely black or purely Italian or purely this or that. Um, and it still happens now. I will, I will tell you, I think it kind of happened to me when I bought my house mm. um, because I I was buying my house at the same time a friend of mine was trying to buy a home and they were in different parts of upstate New York and my friend is married and was buying a house. She's married and white and was buying a house with her husband. Um, I am single and black and buying a house on my own and their mortgage was approved probably five times faster than mine. Like it took months for my mortgage to be approved. And I finally called the bank one day and I'm like, I'd like for you to explain this to me because just using my friends as an example, um, as a single person, I make 10 times more money than they do. And they got their mortgage approved faster than me. So mm -hmm. what exactly is going on here? And they were like, uh, 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 and then it was approved the next day. Yeah. And it happens all the time. Like mm -hmm. there are people who... Um, there was a just recently a, a, a guy who was putting his house on the market and because he, you know, kind of listed that he was black, um, the house was valued at $200,000 less than it was when he changed the application and said he was white. Yeah. I mean, this shit happens all the time. So this house is so important to this to the younger family yeah. for so many reasons, but it also will not really solve the greater issue, which is they are living in a racist country that doesn't want them to have anything or own anything. Right. So when this fucking guy shows up, it throws everything into chaos. And it's kind of an interesting, there's an interesting shift because As Asa guy comes in and is basically, um, you know, Beneath is like in a, in a tizzy because Walter has lost some of the money and he comes and he's like, well, none of that money was yours to begin with. Like you, it's, it's sad that America pushes black people into a place where they have to, you know, think of money in this way. Like he kind of has a very philosophical approach to it right. and she doesn't want to hear it, of course, but he's like, you should come back to Nigeria with me. I'll show you some shit. But I just kind of like that there's somebody in there who, who just pointedly says that there's something really wrong when the dreams of an entire family rest on one man's death. Yeah. And he just points it out in such an eloquent way. And I think it really, I don't know, there's also like, there's just so much happening here, but there's there's something about the, there's a plant metaphor that runs through this whole film as well, where, you know, Lena kind of tends to this very sickly um, plant that is not thriving. And she puts it in the windowsill, but when you look out the window, you realize there's just another building there. It's not getting enough sunlight. And she keeps tending to it. And she wants to pack it with them and move move it with them. Like, everyone's like, why are you taking care of this little plant? And it's a metaphor for the Black experience in America, where it's like, you have to tend to what you can and keep these little parts of yourself alive uh, so that one day you can get to a spot where you can truly 
like feel the full sunlight of experience. And the the title of this play is taken from a Langston Hughes poem, uh, which is also worth looking up. And I think that it's just that the connections that are being made and the metaphors that are being discussed in that plant in particular and this house and this just this again this confusion and this rage and this anger and this this sadness and just like the the emotional life of this family is rooted in their inability to thrive not their desire to thrive because they all want to it's the inability to thrive because of the country they live in yeah. And I just, I can't, every time I watch this movie, I can't get over how, how tense it is. And like my stomach hurts and like, I'm just so affected by these performances. And I think it's an absolute masterpiece. I think the play is a masterpiece. I think the film is a masterpiece. Um, and I think it's worthwhile for everyone to give it, give it a look or give it a read. Oh, could not agree more. Just that's it. Couldn't agree more. I mean, it's like such an important piece of history and it's you know um one of sydney's best performances like mm-hmm. his emotions in some of these scenes um because he was in the original play wasn't he too yeah him and ruby d yeah so like yeah. i couldn't i can't even imagine what it must have been like to see it live fireworks uh, i know <laughs> and, in the mo- and in the movie like it's so intense like he's yeah in many parts of the film, he's just very anguished and um, he's incredible. So, yeah, I'm so glad that you picked it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, like I said, I wish I had, I wish I would like to see, I would like to see the play again. Yeah. And uh, I would too. Yeah. I, mean, I got to f- figure out when that, ha- when that will happen. And if it does happen, I, w- I want to go. But, um, you know, it would be great is if it was in London, then we could, two birds. One piece of bread. Listen, I'm. If that's my first, my first, like an excuse for my first trip to London, let's do it. I'm ready. Uh, that would be yes. such a great, a great reason to go. Somebody produce Raisin in the Sun at the West End immediately. <laughs> do it. <laughs> well, listen, Danielle. I think this episode was. I mean, I know the beginning we had to air some of our own personal thoughts about things, um, but it was a great episode because I get to see these two movies together. You got to, we got to talk about Sidney Poitier. It was just like such incredible talent. And yeah, I mean, it's just, um, it was just a fun double feature to watch. Yeah, this is, this is a great, this is a great double feature. If you're looking for a real good one, um, I would say dig in, watch it back to back. It's worth it. Well, look, um, you want to announce the movies for next episode? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, Our movies for the next episode will be Broadcast News from 1987 and Leon Morin, Priest from 1961. I'm going to tell you right now, y'all ain't going to get it. Like, you're just not... (laughs) You, I mean, you might if you're a real smart cookie, but I don't think you're going to get it. I will be absolutely fucking shocked if anyone guesses this theme. <laughs> I love this actual aneurysm if somebody guesses this. <laughs> uh, I'm holding you to that. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> but listen, if you want to take a stab at the theme, um, if you just want to email us respectfully... 
please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Listen, bonus episodes have been a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Uh, stories about movie experiences, but honestly, like we've been getting a lot of like real fun ones. Like what we are doing over and over, like fuck Mary kills. Uh, if you have any kind of like alternate Oscar, uh, what was it? An alternate Oscar uh. category, um, questions, that kind of stuff. We love it. We love it. It's so good. Yeah, there was a, um, if you listen to the last bonus episode, you'll understand that we had a, we had a, an, an email from a listener named Stephanie, who uh, she and her husband come up with, um, in order, they think that in order to revitalize the Oscars, there there should be some niche categories added. And so they, we read the letter, she asked us some questions about what we would add and who would get our Creep Lifetime, Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, that oh, was one of the categories they came up with. So Stephanie's a legend already. Um, and definitely send us anything like that. We love it. We love it. On that note, Danielle, it's always a fucking pleasure to do this podcast with you. Always, always, always. Truly the highlight of my, my life and my week. And I just especially love this episode. And thank you again so much for being a wonderful friend. I love hearing that, but I'm, I'm, it's so easy to be your friend. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod, And you can email us at isawwhatyoudidpod at gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.